0: Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host Susana Munoz. Today today we're talking about land acknowledgements on college campuses and how higher education institutions can perhaps move beyond these statements. I'm thrilled to be joined by three indigenous scholars and practitioners in the field of higher education. Student Affairs Now is a premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work, uh, work in alongside and adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find us at studentaffairsnow.com or on Twitter at at now exclamation. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Susana Munoz. I'm an associate professor and program chair in the Higher Education Leadership Program at Colorado State University. My pronouns are she, her, hers, yeah. I'm hosting this conversation today from Fort Collins, Colorado. With respect, I want to acknowledge that the land that I'm standing on today is a traditional and ancestral homelands of the Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute nations and peoples. Now let's get started with this conversation. We're here to discuss land acknowledgements on college campuses. Why are these statements important, but how can institutions move beyond these statements? I have my guests here today that I'm super happy about. So please introduce yourselves and your relationship to the topic.
1: Me first? Yes.
0: Halito, hello everyone.
1: Uh, My name is Tiffany Kelly. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Um, I'm a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma and I'm currently working um, at Colorado State University also. I serve as the Assistant Director in the Native American Cultural Center here. And I also um, serve as a co-chair for the Native American Advisory Council to the President which is doing is a newer advisory council which is doing a lot of the indigenizing indigenous work at Colorado State um, where our land acknowledgement was created by indigenous and native faculty staff and community members so Um, I've been doing this work for a couple of years now. And then I also am involved with NASPA, serving um, as a co-chair of the Indigenous Peoples Knowledge Community, where we are also doing some of this work within NASPA and really having conversations about centering and visibilizing indigenous and native um, student affairs professionals. So I'm also, just a little more about me, um, I'm a first-generation student um, and I'm multiracial. I'm
2: a sister, I'm a daughter, I'm an auntie, and um, I'm truly excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Hello everybody, my name is Shelly Lowe. I am a citizen of the Navajo Nation. I live and work on the traditional territory of the Massachusetts tribe. I'm the executive director of the Harvard University Native American program. Um, in this position, um, actually, we are currently working on our kind of creating an institutional territory land acknowledgement. Um, and it's a it's a process I think that takes many forms and has many perspectives and it's, um, Going to be i think in this case a long process i um i can talk about some of that a little bit because it, but it's a process that's ongoing so there are some things that we just haven't gotten to yet at this institution so my office and my role is um, to support kind of spearheading that project and trying to have all of the voices involved that need to be involved and the perspectives that need to be taken into account in that process um, I am originally from Arizona. I've been out here for 11 years. I am a mother. I am a grandmother. I am a daughter and a cousin and an auntie. Um, and I miss home. <laughs> I miss home a lot. So it's nice to it's nice to be out here where the seasons change, but it's um, hard, especially at this time, to be so far away from individuals that you can't you can't just easily go home and see right now. So, but I'm glad to be here.
0: Uh Hato
3: uh Hondayon Imbo? Heather Schotten and I am an associate professor and the chair of uh, for the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies uh, in the, at the University of Oklahoma. I also serve as the director of indigenous education initiatives for the Janine Rainbolt College of Education at OU. Uh, I reside and call home to, these are my homelands, uh, but I engage with work, scholarship, practice, teaching, and learning on the traditional homelands of the Wichita and Caddo people. Uh, I also recognize that um, what is now known as Oklahoma originally served as a site of gathering, exchange, and migration for a number of tribes, including the Kiowa, the Comanche, the Apache, and the Osage and that today 39 uh, tribal nations call Oklahoma home, many as a result of settler colonial policies of removal. Uh, so I think that that's an important acknowledgement um, in terms of the work that I engage with and where I am in acknowledging the responsibilities to the tribal nations in this state. Uh, I am a citizen of the Wichita affiliated tribes. I'm also a Kiowa and Cheyenne descendant. And um, like my my lovely uh, co-guests, I guess, today. I am a mother, a partner, um, a daughter, a granddaughter, uh, and an auntie, and a sister, so I'm glad to be in community with all of you today. Uh, Some of this extends to the work that I've been doing at my own institution, uh, but also the work that Um, many of us have engaged with the Association for the Study of Higher Education. So that's what brings me to to this conversation today. Uh, um, I've been fortunate to be a part of a a group, a collective of indigenous scholars who've engaged ASH um, with really developing land acknowledgement practices and sensibilities uh, over the last two years. So,
0: um, So happy to be in community with everyone today. Thank you for those beautiful introductions. I'm so um, thrilled that you bring uh, your authentic selves and all of your identities and languages into the space. That's uh, truly um, I'm grateful for that. So I'm going to start off with with Tiffany. Um, Tiffany, could you give us some historical context and, and or even institutional context about land acknowledgments on our college campuses? you know, what do do they accomplish? What are some shortcomings? Um, And just your overall work with land acknowledgements.
1: Thanks, Dr. Munoz. Um, Yeah, I think um, I I looked up a couple of resources. I think there's some really good scholarship and literature out there about land acknowledgements now. And um, I think, you know, in my experience in higher education, land acknowledgements have really become Kind of a trendy thing in the last just couple of years um by non-indigenous folks and i i think it's important also to note that as indigenous native folks we've been doing our own forms of land acknowledgments for a very long time in very personal and community-based ways um, and then other folks institutions started to maybe pick up on some of the language and i think in all honesty kind of capitalizing on some of the um be good PR that it brings, you know. um, So um, I do first want to acknowledge um, this article that was um, recently published by Megan Redshirt Shaw, um, Beyond the Land Acknowledgement, Um, and she writes that um, a, a land acknowledgement, an indigenous land or territorial acknowledgement, is a statement that recognizes the indigenous peoples Who have been dispossessed from the homelands and territories upon which an institution was built and currently occupies and operates in and I think that's really important and she goes on to write more about it um, that right colleges and universities wouldn't exist without stolen land and without the dispossession and settler colonial ways of removing and dispossessing native and indigenous communities and so Um, while land acknowledgements have become kind of a welcome or a way to kick off an event or a graduation, um, which is great and I think really does help visibilize um, our communities in ways that are often very invisibilized and and hidden and not talked about in institutions of higher education and even in like diversity and inclusion work. um, It feels very one-off and in like a checkmark kind of a thing, especially I think as it's become a little more trendy and as colleges and universities are just creating statements to read without additional institutionalized policies and programs that are helping Native and Indigenous students, that are helping faculty and staff and giving them resources and opportunities and things like that. Um, And so I think it's I think in terms of like accomplishments and something that I've been really fortunate to be a part of the work at Colorado State University is um, at CSU, our kind of land acknowledgement and our advisory council was really created as a task force to respond to a racial um, biased incident on campus against Native students that was really publicly it was very public and it went public very fast. Um, And so it kind of mobilized CSU to create this task force and out of this task force and a lot of work by native and indigenous um, faculty and staff and community members and students, the the language and the land acknowledgement was created. um, And it's a very like public forward facing thing. So I think folks really think that It's kind of a one off and I think that's good to question, but I also think it's given us some leverage and some capital to to push some other initiatives um, and really question policies and practices that CSU as a land grant institution should have been thinking about a long time ago and really since the beginning. Um, and so I think some of those accomplishments and some of the things that it do, that it's done, um, at least at CSU and in my experience, is it's, it's created some, some institutionalized scholarships and award money for native students. Um, so recognizing um, students that are citizens of tribes that are outside, and that were forcibly removed from the state of Colorado to be able to receive in-state tuition, um, which is a good step, but I think we could push a little further. Um, But also, you know, it's created some, I think, visible and maybe talked about issues that we've been talking about as a community for a long time that were just never really central to conversations when talking about student success and retention and and, um, diversity and inclusion work. And so I think it's been a great first step. Um, But I think some of the shortcomings, and I'm sure this is going to continue to come up, is that for folks that really don't understand um or really have never learned um about indigenous communities and native history and laws and policies because those things aren't taught in our k-12 education really especially depending on where you went to school um it's i think it's misunderstood a lot and i've experienced that at csu quite a bit um that people feel like great this is a part of our welcome um and we read it, and now I'm going to go into logistics of the programs, like here's where the bathrooms are, and then I'm going to do a full, an actual welcome. So it feels like very tasky, and it's just read, and it's, you can feel when someone doesn't maybe understand what their role is in the land acknowledgement, which is something we talk about a lot um, and I I kind of joke about, it. I'm like, right, I think land acknowledgements are really for non-Native and Indigenous folks, because if we were really having these conversations, you'd be giving us our land back, or we'd be providing free tuition or something for students. Um, and so, like, what is your role in understanding your your positionality to this land? And even as a Native person, I'm a settler here, because my tribe, my people are not of this land. And so, even what is my role in this work? and um, pushing further beyond the land acknowledgement which is the title of the podcast so um you know I think something I think about a lot and something that I've been grateful to have some conversations around within NASPA my Indigenous Peoples Knowledge Community Group is really talking about like what is indigenizing what does indigenizing mean because it's getting thrown around a lot and there's a, um, a quote in this book, Power and Place by Vine Deloria Jr. and Dr. Dan Wildcat that really stuck with me. Um, and, and they write about that um, to indigenize an action or an object is the act of making something of place and really understanding what is place and what is our relationship and role to that place. Um, and so I think those are the conversations that we're able to have now because of this. And the land acknowledgement has kind of positioned us to do that and really ask some of these harder questions and ask us of our colleagues and of our administrators and um, our students. And so those are just some of the things I've had experience with at CSU and kind of maybe in some other institutions. Um, and I think it's, I think we're in a place where it's pretty like common now and so I think it positions us to really ask some harder questions like all right we've got the lovely statement we made a pretty video now what now what are we doing what else are we doing right how are we creating positions what relationships are we building with the tribal nations in our state or the ones that were pushed out of this state in order to further this work so those were some of my thoughts and things I was thinking of Yeah, and Susana, I
3: actually really appreciate starting with that question of where, what is the context, particularly the historical context of land acknowledgement statements um, or land acknowledgements. And so um, when Tiffany talks about these are things that are are connect to traditional practices of indigenous peoples, I think that's really important to understand um, because it's about our connection to place and land, not just connection and whose land we're on, Um, but what is our responsibility and how are we in relationship with? And I think um, Eve Tuck had a really great, um, (laughs) I'm not sure how we start citing Twitter. Like it was a great tweet a number of years ago when Nisa was uh, scheduled to be in Toronto um, that really pushed back on this idea of land acknowledgments and reframing it as acknowledgement of land and how we're in right relationship with land and place and water, right? Um, I think the other historical piece is in the U.S. context, much of what we picked up in institutions that we're we're framing as land acknowledgments um, were adopted from First Nations and from Canada, and come uh, came out of. Um, a response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, in Canada that addressed First Nations people and the atrocities of settler colonialism and um, that First Nations people um, have endured. And so land acknowledgements in that context, we saw that really happen in Canada first, and then we started to adopt a lot of those. But I think the, the question of going back to what are the origins of this and understanding why we do something is always a really important first place to start from so that everything that Tiffany's talking about, we avoid the check mark mentality, the, okay, you have um, 35 seconds to give your land acknowledgement statement before you present your paper at this conference or whatever that, you know, it might be. Um, And Or can you give me a boilerplate? Like what is the land acknowledgement statement that we all have to read? So if we're all starting from a position of understanding why we do them, what is their historical context and framing it of um, acknowledgement of land and place and our relationship, then it shifts uh, shifts us away from from some of those missteps. All
2: right. go ahead, Shelly. also tim i would I would even um to kind of respond to both Heather and Tiffany, um kind of this idea. give me the bol- boilerplate, right? Um, I can't tell you how often my office gets emails and calls about can you please tell us what to do for a land acknowledgement? Um, can you please come over and do the land acknowledgement for us? Can you please tell us a native person who could do the land acknowledgement for us? And the reality is it's not supposed to be by a native person, right? It's supposed to be by you, whoever's opening your event, doesn't matter who it is, you're supposed to do it. Um, my favorite one was, can you come over and we can record you so we can play it at the beginning of all of our programs? No, <laughs> that's not how it works. Um, but I like the, I like Tiffany and kind of talking about how do we ground ourselves in place, right? Place being more than um, just a place, but also land. And I think the the reality is we do this really well in student affairs. We do this every single day as we come into our jobs. We ground ourselves within a certain place within the institution, within a certain role, right? We know what our job is. We know what it is where we belong and trust me if if we think we over overstep our bounds of where we belong somebody will tell us somebody not in student affairs and academics or something will tell us that we've overstepped our bounds right we're very good about knowing where we sit within an institution where our physical office space is you know how is it accessible to students um, and i think you know it's it's a part of it's, a, it's about taking that a step further right and understanding Okay, our physical office, our physical institution. Where does it sit? You know, geographically, where does it sit within a region? Where does it sit? You know, when I look outside, what are the trees that I see? What's the environment? Um, what's out there? Because it's going to look different for me than it's going to look for other individuals who are in other parts of the country. And if we just kind of start to think about that a little bit more then hopefully we start to think even further, right? Who are the people that were here at are here? Who are the people that were originally here? And that becomes part of a more understanding historical um, um, knowledge of the place and knowledge of the land that you're in, which I think we should all be able to do and why people don't actually take that extra step to that point. I'm not really sure why that doesn't happen. Um, and that's one of the things I think that uh, we're we'll grapple with here in the institution that I'm in.
3: That's actually my yeah. favorite response whenever they ask um, can you come give the land acknowledgement for me? Well, I don't know. y'all are in my homelands. So <laughs> the land acknowledgement that I'm gonna provide is very different than what you're gonna provide as a settler because I literally work on and engage with scholarship and teaching and learning on, my traditional homeland. So what I have to say is very different than what um, a settler has to say and what that responsibility and relationship is like. So yeah, I always say, well, I don't know, you're on my land. So I don't know what to tell you.
0: I appreciate the conversation because I feel like you're right. We, We have not engaged in sort of what is our relationship? What is my individual relationship to the land, to the water? How have I reconciled? Um, you know how I navigate in these spaces, and I think you know what it lacks is sort of like this constant engagement. You're given the statement, you're like, okay, here you go, but it's not engaged in in ways that really unpack our ind- individual relationship um, to the land. Um, and so I, I I wanted to ask Shelly, sort of, you're you're at you know you're at Harvard. Um, you know, which is re, you know regarded as one of the colonial institutions, and I wondered if you could speak a little bit to sort of the institutional reconciliation for an Indigenous college students, um, and what does that look like in practice? I think you know to kind of um, lay
2: the groundwork of Harvard as an institution. Um, as many people know, Harvard was founded in 1636, and by 1650. The institution was not doing well was actually um, didn't have enough money and the society for the propagation of the gospel raised money for the institution in order to educate and um, house native students so in 1650 the Indian college was built the charter was or it was the charter was created and the Indian college um, was planned to be built the charter which we um it's kind of our document today what we um, kind of Adhere to is to educate English English and Indian youth of this country and it's very interesting it's a long charter so that's just kind of a very small portion of the charter. But it's the portion that you know gets used the most and in ironically in some instances, the Indian youth part gets taken out with dot 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 uh, which we've had to call out a number of times here at the institution, but you know that's it's part of. It's a charter that we try to remind people of every day because at Harvard, I can't tell you how many people don't actually know that history, don't even know the history of the institution. And I'm talking about students, I'm talking about faculty, I'm talking about administration. So it's difficult to kind of look at Harvard as an example because of its founding, because of its history. But to say that the reality is most people don't know that that's the history, that that's what the institution is. Harvard is not a public state institution. Harvard is not a land-grant institution. So some of the conversations that public and land-grant institutions are having are not the conversations that Harvard is having. Harvard is also um, one of the prime examples of a decentralized institution. So Harvard's one institution, Harvard University, but it's made up of a number of different schools that actually kind of run themselves as though they're separate colleges and separate institutions. So the Kennedy School could make a decision about territorial acknowledgement or indigenous people's day on their calendar and the ed school can do something completely different. So Harvard University as a whole um, allows the schools to be able to make their own decisions and kind of govern themselves and decide what their calendars are gonna look like or how they're gonna do some of these um, kind of decision-making and um, practices that they might adopt school-wide. So it's kind of, it's an interesting time to try to say to an institution, all right, everybody needs to think about our history and everybody needs to think about the fact that we have indigenous and native students here when every school is kind of thinking on their own and doing their own thing and having different relationships with tribes and having different kind of focus and curriculum that's indigenous in nature. But um, what we find is our students come in and our students, are kind of confronted with this from the get-go. Like from day one, they are very aware that this institution doesn't know its own history once they find out, because they don't always know when they get here. And then they find out what the history of the institution is. They find out that very few people even know that natives still exist in this institution um, and in the area generally. And that they are one of maybe two other students at the school that they're at. Um, Hopefully there's a few more, there are a couple of schools I have more than, you know, a handful of Native students, and they start to feel that um, kind of sadness, right, that this institution really is so, for all of its knowledge and glory, um, really clueless about something that's so important to them and about their identity, about where they come from, about the reality of where they live, what um, Indigenous cultures are about, what Indigenous knowledge and studies about. And we find that students get, they start to come together and they start to have conversations with each other. And if there is something that has actually happened here at Harvard in terms of institutional change, acknowledging Indigenous Peoples Day in certain instances or faculty um, giving land acknowledgements at the beginning of events, a lot of it has come from students coming together and petitioning or writing letters to the deans and to their schools. And making this public through, you know, the student newspaper or being interviewed through the Harvard Gazette, right? Our students really um, do—they—they have a voice and they tell the institution quite point blankly, you know, this is wrong and you need to change this. Um, How does the institution respond to that? Mm, You know, depends on the school and depends on the individual who is kind of dean of the school or the faculty in that school. I do think that over the past couple of years, we're seeing a lot more. Faculty paying attention. They're um, actually asking questions. They're actually realizing that this is the history, and they're going about trying to find um, information to share about that history. They're including it in their coursework. But it's just—it's a start. And for an institution that's so old and has this has, has had this history for so long, you know, sometimes it's really shocking that we're just now getting to that point and we're just now being able to really kind of say to a student who comes in, oh, the university now does, or this school and this school and this school um, recognizes Indigenous Peoples Day, although Harvard's general calendar will say, you know, Columbus Day is a federal holiday, Indigenous Peoples Day is a Cambridge City holiday, right? You're still going to be confronted with that um, kind of just smack in your face, which students are, you know, very upset about. But, they're going to events and they're hearing land acknowledgements. We have institutions on campus that are putting up signs in their buildings with land acknowledgements. Um, And it's it's starting to be a conversation regularly across campus, but it's not something that the institution has adopted kind of university-wide, right? And that's the conversation that we're trying to push forward now. How do you create something that is university-wide because we see so many great examples from other institutions, right? And everybody's always trying to look at Harvard as the example and we have to be honest and say, yeah, you know, we haven't gotten there yet. (laughs) We're we're working on it. Um, It's it's a conversation that, you know, our allies are are really having to be um, pushing forward for us. We're such a small voice in terms of natives on campus. Um, We tenured the first native faculty member in 2018. First time Harvard's ever had a tenured Native faculty member, and you know, so it's small steps, but these little things are starting to move the conversation forward, and the institution I think is actually starting to pay attention a little bit more and be much more supportive. But it's it's been a long road, and it's frustrating, and it's it's extremely frustrating for our students, Um, and we just we just got to keep going, right? You just got to keep that conversation front and center,
0: and keep reminding the institution that this needs to happen. Thank you for that. Yes, I think I had to let out a big sigh when you said 2018 was the first time you tenured an an Indigenous faculty. That's, and it's, it is work. It is those, you know, continued steps. And, and, you know, one of the things that um, we continue to notice is that it's the students' labor that are continually pushing on these issues to our administration. Um, and, and and so, Heather, like, you know, how should our colleges and universities be operating in relationship, you know, to the land that we currently operate in? And, you know, what, you know, what should we be thinking and asking and questioning, you know, our universities to be doing? Well, first of all, I just have to acknowledge
3: I love that Shelley is always like, um, y'all need to quit looking to Harvard. As the epitome with all of the answers, I love her honesty about that because I think that that's really important when we think about um, how we, how what institutions we look to, and are we really thinking about what they're getting right and what they're not? Like the fact that 2018, wow! Um, and and for those you know, for higher ed scholars and practitioners that know the the deep history of of those institutions. So yeah, I I just needed to acknowledge that because I love it. Um and she she's pretty vocal about that in lots of spaces, so to her credit. So when you know, I I think about this question of then how um should we be oper- our institutions be operating in relationship with land um that they that they currently occupy. Um, and one I think is understanding that the context um, so Tristan Autone did this really great um, series on land grab universities and um, and has provided and has done a, po- um, a podcast episode on it and lots of writing uh, about our land grant institutions. And how many of our institutions um, don't question where that land came from or what that means uh, and how they continue to benefit from um, occupying indigenous land, and so I think that that's the the that's the minimal step um, of of thinking about how you're in relationship with land is understanding what what your relationship is and what the historical context is. How does your occupation of that land um, impact indigenous peoples? How has that dispossessed uh, tribal nations? How has that impacted uh, Indigenous communities? How does it continue to impact Indigenous communities? So I think it's, it's um, that's like the, that's not even a step, like that's the starting point that that our institutions have to start from. Um, And so I think that even, you know, the the question to Shelly about thinking about institutional reconciliation. So Colorado State is a great example of recognizing how the institution benefits from the dispossession of land for the original inhabitants of that area, right So um, reconciling that with tuition waivers for descendants of those tribes uh, and what the, what that looks like that's a that's I think a, a great first step and a great example. Um, I think that, you know, it's not just the recognition of land and not just the recognition of the people of that place, Um, but it is certainly about understanding and becoming familiar with and being in relationship with those people, Uh, understanding that um, I think some people talk about um, who were the original inhabitants, but they talk about Indigenous folks as if our physical removal, and sometimes and oftentimes, very violent removal from the, these lands and these places. We um, noticed when I was introducing myself, I talked about the 39 tribes that now reside within Oklahoma. The majority of those tribes are not um, indigenous to this place, uh, but were violently removed here um, or forced forcibly removed here. And so, I think recognizing that even though tribes may have been uh, removed to another location that doesn't remove our connection to those lands and those places, right? So when we talk about Indigenous peoples who historically or traditionally had ties to those lands, it erases the the connection that we keep with our ancestral homelands, right? And, um, you know, our our sister scholar, uh, Charlotte Davidson, often talks about the umbilical connection that we have to land into place. And so I think understanding those things. um, When we think about institutions and um, their relationship to the land that they occupy, again, understanding the role of of settler colonialism. What is the role of settler colonialism and how does the institution continue to benefit from that? Um, So that means understanding how, um, how we think about land how we conceptualize land. Uh, So from an indigenous perspective, we're thinking about it in terms of of relationship and land as a relative and what are our responsibilities. From a colonial perspective, it's perceived as dominion and how we own land, land as property. And so really interrogating um, how institutions even approach, um, approach our understanding of land right? And, and what that relationship is. Uh, I mean, we see it all the time. If you look at um, any agenda for your regents or your trustees, and there's always some discussion of property, of institutional property. And uh, and so that's an, an important piece. I think the other thing is um, when we think about at what points um, are the mission and the work of the institution incongruent or um, in conflict, or do they contradict land acknowledgments or relationships with land? Um, so I think a, of a couple examples, and those that were at the um, the session that many of us did on uh, land beyond land acknowledgement statements at ASH last year. Um, we talked explicitly. Some of our our uh, fellow Indigenous scholars from um, Hawaii talked about um, the direct impact of research, scientific research um, at UH Mānoa and Mount um, and Akea. So the desecration of uh, a sacred mountain and site uh, and place for, um, for Native Hawaiian people. Uh, that's a direct connection to the institution that is in conflict. So what good does it do if you acknowledge what land you're on, if you are actively engaged in production of knowledge or research that impacts um, Indigenous people in negative ways or that destroys land bases um, and continues to undo uh, places and sacred sites and knowledge uh, of Indigenous people. So what good does that do if you can read all the land acknowledgement statements you want, but if you're still engaging in harmful practices, what does it matter? Um, And I think about my own institution in in a lesser way. Um, I think Mauna Kea and um, you know, a lot of, of attention has been given to that over the last couple of years but particularly last year um, and so it was at the forefront of a lot of people's minds and and really egregious uh, but we see this often in our institutions i think about my own um where our mascot literally celebrates um theft of indigenous land um, if we understand the, the the context and the history of um of where our mascot comes from at the University of Oklahoma, um, and let me just note this is where tenure is a really great thing. As I, as I speak out and say these things that that uh, might not be viewed favorably, but I mean, we what is so we've actually been working at the university with a group of us um, on developing not just a land acknowledgement statement, but practices and protocols for the university. But I struggle. Because what good does any of that do if um, if every day I have to look at uh, a celebration, the constant celebration of dispossession of indigenous land? We celebrate it every day. We celebrate it at football games when we reenact uh, the land run. Um, and so if we are not changing our practices and being accountable to indigenous peoples of that place, then, Um, then what is the point? So I think about thinking about what are the actual uh, responsibilities to tribal nations, to indigenous communities, and more importantly, what are our responsibilities to land uh, and to place? So how do we think shift our thinking um, away from dominion and ownership and property and how much land we can accumulate uh, to framing it within being caretakers and being uh, good relatives to land. How are we in good relationship with land? And how are we making sure that the work that we do um, in our institutions, one, doesn't recreate harm, but two, also is um, continuing work that helps us to be in um, right relationship. I think Eve Tuck talks a lot about that. How am I in right relationship with and um, making sure that it's not only that we're not recreating harm, but that we are responsible to uphold, upholding sovereignty, upholding treaty rights, and upholding the indigenous peoples um, of the land, and being good relatives to land and place.
0: Oh, yes, <laughs> that was that was good, and that was a that was that was a, it's a lot. It it. it you know, looking at continually looking at how our institutions are perpetuating whiteness, white supremacy, color, you know, but also understanding that it's it's super rooted in our practices. And so it, you know, it. <laughs> to me, I think it's like you know, this this um, this incongruency is is way more important than sort of like looking at yes, how are we yes yes how are we in relationship to the land and what continues to be an incongruence in our practice and in our policies within our institutions that sort of contradicts this 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 land they, they, the notion of an acknowledgement, right? The the relationship. Um, I know we're getting near our end of time, and I I want to just ask you all, sort of, now you know this podcast is called Student Affairs Now. Um, so, what are you now pondering, questioning, troubling, um you know, based on some of the conversations that we've we had today? I'm gonna to start with you, Tiff. yeah,
1: i I mean, I jotted down a lot of notes because I'm definitely like mulling over as a student affairs practitioner, like what is our role in student affairs to really? like push the agenda and help our institutions do some of this work and I keep going back to something that Shelly the Shelley, when you talked about the tenured faculty being in 2018 and I I wrote down like our land acknowledgements like misleading and like bad marketing because it's like false marketing like we have these land acknowledgements to to like make our institutions look like we're you know, with the buzzwords anti-racist, inclusion, things like that, and then our students get here, our faculty and staff get to those campuses and are looking at a racist mascot every day, or there's nothing put in place to actually support those communities. They're not upholding treaty rights or acknowledging sovereignty or building relationships with tribal nations, and so I think I'm really sitting with, like, institutions, you know, if, in particular, student affairs folks, if, if thinking, about land acknowledgements is something you're wanting to do and you're just tapping into the only native or indigenous person you know on that college campus to really like look and think about how you're perpetuating the, like those settler colonial logics of or the erasure of native people and only wanting us for token whatever, you know, what policies and practices are actually being advocated for and brought forward to to be talked about, you know, the land acknowledgements really are just like, they, they seem easy and I think folks are creating and adapting language very easily without doing some of that harder work. But what else are you doing? And I think that's a lot of what everyone brought up today and really like, it's like, if you think this is easy then you better be ready to do the rest of the work that comes along with it. And I don't know if folks really understand like what all that extra and additional work is and should be. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think I'm just sitting with some of that of, of like, what are those conversations looking like? And also that can't just live in student affairs. Like we don't have the capacity to do those things and are often the one asked to do those things. Um, like Shelly, Heather, you were talking to, right? Being like the native office, like getting asked to do all the things that's like, um, we're trying to take care of our students over here. who are in crisis right now because of everything happening, but sure. Let me come speak for 25 seconds at the beginning of your thing. So now I'm rambling, but those were some of the like notes that I jotted down of just like, this is really hard work and it's hard work that really comes down to relationships and, and really looking at policies and practices and evaluating like how your institution continues to benefit off of the genocidal practices against Native and Indigenous communities, and those aren't fun conversations, so I think it requires a lot of commitment and accountability and responsibility on the part of institutions and the folks working there um, to be a good relative, like Heather was saying, so, yeah.
2: Thank you. Shelly, how about you? I have to say that I ponder, and I, every day, (laughs) I have these things in my head where I'm like, I just don't understand why is this happening? I don't get it. Um, so there's like a whole list of things that I could go through. A couple of things. Um, I think as student affairs professionals, the one of the best things that we can do is we can have the resources um, to give to our students who are being put in these situations whether they like it or not. Some of our students willingly go into the situations to try to address you know the issues of nobody understanding native cultures, that natives exist. Um, but some of our students are not wanting to do that and they're kind of being put in that position without um, their permission. So we do our best to make sure that the resources and you know, um, the protections that we can give them when they have to go into these conversations when they have to play this role that they haven't asked for. Um, and being there to support them and making sure that they know that we're there and we're gonna continue the work that they do because students, you know, when they're in our institutions, they don't understand that they're transient in our institutions, right? They're not gonna be here forever. They're gonna go and they're gonna have to do it in a different place as they leave our institutions. But I ponder every day, I just don't understand how a student can graduate from an institution of higher education in this country Without understanding that Native people are contemporary, that we exist, that we are enduring, and we're going—we're not going anywhere—that we have real cultures, that we have living cultures, living languages, that we have sovereignty, that we are Native nations—you know—it just—I'm just shocked by the extremely talented, um, intelligent people who graduate from our institutions and don't know that still. They go out into the world to do these jobs, they go out to make all of, you know, in leadership positions to make all of these changes, but they are not aware of the fact that native people are real, that we exist, that we are part of this country, that we are part of this world, that we have been here and we will continue to be here. It just it I'm just shocked every day when somebody comes up to me. I didn't know native people still exist. High school teachers. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I don't know. Um, so what I ponder is, you know, and I say this a lot: too many people have no idea what they don't even know, and how do we change that? How do we, as institutions of higher learning, how do we, as professionals and student affairs, right? How do we help our institutions to address that issue? Um, without, you know, um, putting all of the burden on, like Tiffany said, two or three people, right? Staff in the Native Studies Program or staff in the Native Student Support Office, right? We need our allies and individuals to help us do all of this work. And building that coalition, I think is, it's part of our jobs that we, we need to make sure that the right people are in with us because we know that when we do this work if the wrong person's in, it really derails things and it p- takes things off in a different direction that we needed to go. But, you know, it's, it's gonna be something that um, is starting now, but I think it's something that we're gonna continue to talk about in 10, 20 years, unfortunately. There. All right, I'll keep it short. Um,
3: <laughs> so I, I think that really what I, I continue to grapple with, and I, and I hope that others grapple with, is that all of these conversations um, around land acknowledgement practices, um, around land and responsibility and relationship, um, really around decolonizing work is a process. It's not a destination that we, and when we frame it as a destination, um, that's when we get to the checklist um, that we have arrived. And I think what I have, I continue to grapple with um, is then what is that ongoing process and how do I engage this as an ongoing process of responsibility and reciprocity and approach it from, from that place and and through that lens. And so that um, my hope is that across our institutions in student affairs and academic affairs um, at, at every level that then we're being good, um, good community members with one another and grappling with these questions together and encouraging one another to think about this as again a process and not a destination um, so that we're removing that kind of expertise and um, the notion that we have nothing yet to learn. The land is always teaching us, right? We're always learning. Um, And so as long as we um, center ourselves um, from that place, I think that that it opens up uh, possibility and opportunity for us to engage in the work that we do in higher ed in much more humane uh, and responsible ways.
0: Thank you so much for that. And, you know, I love that you all brought in sort of this, this is a process and that the um, coalition building needs to be there and that, um, you know, it has the moving beyond the, the nat- land acknowledgements requires that we, we do some critical reflection um, in our leadership. And, uh, and I think that's, that's, I appreciate all the knowledge that you've brought in today I'm grateful that the time that you gave today as a guest on Student Affairs Now, um, you can receive reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to Student Affairs Now newsletter or browsing our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Please subscribe to the podcast, invite others to subscribe, share on social media or leave a five-star review. It really helps the conversation like this reach more people and build communities so we can continue to make this free to you. Again, I'm Susana Munoz, thanks again. Um for our fabulous guests today and to everyone who's watching and listening. Um, be kind to yourself and make it a great week. Thank you.